Hello pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome back to part two of a very Christmassy Empire podcast, or should that be a very Empire-y Christmas podcast? I'm not sure. One of the two. You work it out. You decide. It's Christmas. You can make the choice. And it is Christmas. It's Christmas Day. And I'm just popping on very, very quickly to A, wish you all a very Merry Christmas. I hope that Santa brought you whatever you wanted. And I hope you had some film-related presents in there as well. Uh, And that you're going to be stuffing your face to the gills later on with lots of Christmassy food. That's number one. That's the first thing I wanted to say. The second thing I wanted to say is that this is part two. In part two, you are going to get a bunch of things. You're going to get the pretty lengthy reviews section of this week's podcast in which myself, Helen O'Hara, Ben Travis and James Dyer get into The Matrix Resurrections, Don't Look Up, The Kingsman and Titan. Now, the Matrix Resurrections section in particular is A, fairly lengthy, and B, delves into some mild spoilers so we can discuss the film and contextualise it a little bit. So that's about 17 minutes long all by itself, maybe 16 minutes long. So I will be putting the timestamps for that should you wish to avoid that chat for fear of, again mild spoilers. So I'll be putting those in the blurb that accompanies this podcast. You will also be getting, after that, an interview with Adam McKay, the writer and director of Don't Look Up, and Adam is always great value in the podcast, so I suggest sticking around for that. But first off, we're going to kick off with another interview, and this is with Julia Ducournau, the director of the Pam Door winning Titan, which is a movie that, without getting into spoilers, could very well end up on the, the best of lists for Empire Magazine, Sight and Sound Magazine, and Top Gear Magazine. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Now, this also marks the interviewing debut on the Empire podcast of our recent addition to the staff, Sophie Butcher, who is a big Julia Ducournau fan, and they caught up on Zoom a couple of weeks ago and had a good old natter. So here you are, Julia Ducournau, talking about Titan with Sophie Butcher, after which we plunged back in to the recording we made earlier on this week. Do please enjoy. We're delighted to welcome to the Empire Podcast, the director of Titan, Julia Ducournau. Welcome, Julia. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm really good. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us. Um Brilliant. Just to kick us off, something I'm keen to ask you. I spoke to Agat Roussel, your star of Titan, um, last week, and she told me that she loves karaoke. Now, a lot of the Empire team are also big karaoke fans, and I'd love to know, Julia, because I know you love your music. It's so integral to your films. Do you love a karaoke night? And if so, if so, what is your go-to song? <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, so one, I hate karaoke, I'm afraid to say. <laughs> Please don't hate me, don't judge me. I really sing so bad. I'm very aware of it. So I think the only place where I free myself to sing like really out loud is in a car, uh, but in a room or in a bar filled with like strangers, no way I'm getting through <laughs> that. It's impossible. And I'm very shy, so you, you won't see me doing this. That's okay because I'm exactly the same as you. I'm far too embarrassed to enjoy karaoke. Um, okay, that's good to know. Um, Titan has already received an incredible response from um, critics and audiences alike, including win- winning the Palm Door at Cannes. Um, has that win sunk in for you? Um, how do you feel about that? And how do you feel about how the film's being received? Well, I think it will never sink in, really. I mean, mm. it's something that is so 
um, you know, uh, bigger than yourself mm -hmm. um, as a person and as a filmmaker that I think it's, I find it very hard to um, somehow um, print it into my reality, like my daily reality. So mm -hmm. it's still very um, hard for me to process. Um, maybe I will linger on it a little bit when I will manage to finally start my next script. Uh, which mm -hmm. I haven't had time to do yet. Um, but um, I don't know. I think, you know what? I think in a way it's good that I don't process that. I, mm. I think uh, a lot of pressure can also come from these thoughts. And mm. I truly hope that I um, already, I mean, I already felt a lot of pressure writing Titan. Um, and I hope I don't as much uh, for the next one. So. <laughs> Yeah, of course. And I believe the idea for Titan came about from a recurring nightmare. Is that right? No, it's not actually. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> or, or I'm, being, I'm being very like uh, maybe overly precise here, but it is something no, that has been that has been uh, you know um, spread around a lot mm. because I did have this recurring nightmare. But what I was trying to explain the journalist at that moment is that. Yeah. Basically, when you when you come up with an idea and be, the time between you come up with the idea and the time when you actually uh, start writing your first draft, a lot of time passes. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, maybe it's different for other writers, but as far as I'm concerned, it's really a process um, of trying to connect the dots between uh, various desires, various images that you like, various scenes that you see in your head. Uh, mm -hmm. and then different energies as well. And you just try to connect the dots in order to uh, make a co like, yeah, try to find coherence in that and try to find a narration in it. So let's say that this recurring nightmare is one of these dots, but there are many, many yeah. ones. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, there's, there's, there's a lot going on in Titan and so much of it balances a lot of different tones really well. There's obviously a lot of violence, um, some horror, but there's a lot of really funny moments um, that really stood out um, and a lot of emotional scenes as well, particularly in the second half. How do you manage to, ban to balance all of those elements so well, both well at all stages, um, you know, when you're writing the script, when you're shooting, when you're editing? How do you balance all that stuff? I think most of it is really hard work. Like it's a lot of time again, um, trying to find your right, like the energy and the balance in your structure and your whole film. Uh, I do like to intertwine di different typologies of films and typologies of genres. Um, in my films, it's something that, um, you know, that excites me very much in the idea of creating a film that is its own white animal while intertwining and playing with the, 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 let's say, the, the, the typical dogmas of certain typologies of film and trying to make, mm. them, you know, to make them your own and to, yeah, subvert them, play with them and intertwine all that. So that's something that takes actually a long time. It takes pretty much the whole writing of the script, which for me uh, usually uh, revolves around three years of writing, which is quite a lot. <laughs> and, uh, and so it is, um, you know, it's also like, like music a little bit, like you can feel when something is off, when like you put this comedy scene at this at this moment, but somehow it feels that it betrays the emotion of the previous scene and you feel it's not quite its place yet and stuff like that. Mm. So it's, yeah, it's a lot of, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of, um, I think of um, 
um, mental structure as well, but it's also a lot of instinct. Like part of it is a lot of instinct as well. As I say, I think when you're trying to catch the music of your film, your instinct kinks, kinks in, uh, kicks in sorry, uh, very strongly. You can feel when something is, is you know, off, when something is not at its place and stuff like that. So it's really both. both. Yeah, of course. And music is such a huge part of the film um, and, and your work in Raw as well. Um, what goes into those music choices that you make for the soundtrack and, and for the score as well? How do you approach that? Just to be uh, just to be clear, when I was referring to the music of the film before, I was not talking about actual music. Yeah, talking about you know the music's on pace and it's on feel. You know that's really what I was referring to. But yeah, you are right, there is a lot of music in my film yeah. <laughs> to make a nice bridge towards that. <laughs> there is a lot of music in it. Um, it's um, actually the the, the songs um, uh, that I put in my film. Uh, were was I mean they were already in the script. It's something that I thought about very early on, mm-hmm. um, knowing that my my film was not going to be very chatty, isn't it? That there were not going to be a lot of words because I really tried to uh, um, do as much as I can with image and sound in order to um, convey certain feelings and try to not use words uh, as a, as a first reflex. So mm-hmm. when you do that, you, obviously dancing and music become your very important tools. So the songs were really chosen carefully, like very much ahead of, of, um, of the film, of the writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were chosen obviously because of the, let's say the, the mood they would set for a certain scene, uh, whether it's right in the mood or if it's a counterpoint also happens. For example, Caterina mm. Caselli uh, during the killing spree in the house, which yeah. enhances the comedy of the scene um, because it's a counterpoint. But um, it, they were also chosen because of the lyrics and all the lyrics of all these songs actually really uh, helped me um, reach a pivotal moment of the, um, of the script when they appear in the script because they always say something about the characters changing at this moment. Mm. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, one of my favourite um, elements of, of Titan of Titan and Raw as well is um, there's lots of great like long takes, one shots um, in Raw. Um, there's a shot um, at the party near the start of the film um, following Justine through this party with all these lights and people dancing and she's feeling very chaotic. Um, and Titan starts with a great long shot through the car show um, and Alexia dancing on the car at the end. Um, they're so effective to watch as a viewer. Um, but what is it that you love about those kinds of shots as a, as a director? Well, very, like if we're talking about te- technical aspects of it, um, mm. I love the challenge that they represent. Uh, I love to make them extra hard to do. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I really like to pile on like every difficulty, like for for like I could I, I could be like, um, so okay, we're gonna do this and that, we're gonna go through and like it, I, I'd like something. I think like maybe we should add a crane to that, and maybe <laughs> yeah, maybe we should do the rest with the crane and like take the camera, put it on the crane through the shot. As a, that's what we do in Titan, by the way. And Just keep or- keep adding stuff in there. <laughs> <laughs> This, or I would add more extras, or like for example, with Raw, I added a dog in this in in the Wanner, which was like really, really like you know piling up difficulties because having a dog in a Wanner in a room filled with three hundred people is like almost impossible to keep <laughs> the dog straight. 
Um, I like this because honestly, when you do this kind of hard shots, basically everyone in the crew has something to defend and everyone mm. in the crew has to be on top of the game. And mm. so what you have is a, is a crew that is a very close-knitted, um, that is very um, working together. They have to be working together in order to manage. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so it's, it, it feels like it's a real com- like, um, communion, like it's a real communion mm-hmm. effort. And I really like that. It's like when you're done and when you, you're exhausted and you have your shot and all that, everyone is so satisfied and happy. I think it creates a great dynamic in the crew. And that's mm-hmm. why I like to do this. And for Titan with the car show winner, uh, you have to know that this one we shot the first day of shooting. So you can imagine like shooting a first day like this. Well, after that, your crew is like a family, basically. Yeah. That's great. Really brings you together. It's just a bit of a baptism of fire starting off with one of the the toughest shots. One of the things that I love the most about your work is the physicality of it how you draw the audience like right up close to your character's skin um you create these kind of uncomfortable physical sensations a lot of the time um in Titan there's a lot of body horror and transformation um and you present it in this great way where the audience kind of knows it's coming and we can see what the character's about to do um but we can't look away, <laughs> even no matter how horrible we know it's going to be. Um, could you talk about your approach to that and why that sort of thing is so, so prominent in your films? You mean in the way I direct body horror? Yeah, yeah. And just how there's the sort of visceral sense of um, uh, physically that you create, like in Raw, whether it's like her rash um, or they've seen these animals at this veterinary school. Um, it's just, it always feels like a physical experience to me when I'm watching your films. Yeah, yeah. For sure. Yeah. That's the thing, like when, when, when you want to convey like a physical experience, you also have to, I mean, personally, I want to know, I mean, I know from the get-go, especially when I'm doing my breakdown, I know what I want to show and what is necessary to show and I know what I do not want to show. Okay? Yeah. What, what would make me feel as being gratuitous, you know. Mm. Um, so what I want to show always uh, revolves around my character's experience of themselves. Yes. So if they feel pain or if something completely like, um, you know, or completely outlandish happens to them, for example, in Raw when she's puking hair, okay, which yes. is a very gruesome scene. Yeah. And this, I want you to feel uh, the pain that she feels. I want you to feel the disgust that she feels. I want you to feel the, the horror of this kind of like completely, um, yeah, um, alien things coming out of her. Yeah. And, and I need to show you that because I want you to be with her. Mm-hmm. Another scene where I did not do that, for example, because I did not feel the need to, but I did everything through the mise-en-scene only, is uh, this, the nose-breaking scene in Titan. Yes. The nose-breaking scene is a scene that everyone remembers as being absolutely horrible to watch. And I always think that when people tell me that, that I, I managed to do what I wanted, that I'm happy, because mm. when you look at the scene, you don't see anything. I mean, yeah. it's not like I, I did not show you a nose-breaking. You didn't see bone. You don't see blood except the, the blood protruding from her nostrils. Yeah. But you don't see an actual nose being smashed on the sink. But what I do through that 
through the whole scene is make you anticipate it as go as being horrible. I plant it in your head with the sound and with yeah. like um, things happening off, you know, off screen, and you feel like oh no, oh no, oh no, and you know by the time yeah. you're at your third oh no, it <laughs> means that basically you're so tense. You're so tense that when it's going to happen, you're going to think you saw something when you did not see anything. So I'm happy to, that's, that's the thing, you know, that's the distance, what you want to show, what you don't want to show. Here, I don't want you to, 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 show, that, to show that because for me, the important thing is the result. The result of her looking at her nose completely out of its axis mm. when she's actually laughing. This is like, for me, the climax of the scene is this. The climax was not the moment she impacts the sink. The climax is when she looks at it and she, she laughs. Yeah. It's all about where you put your climax. Absolutely. And yeah, that scene was so impactful. I can remember it very vividly. <laughs> As you say, it really, it really pulled it off. What you, um, like you say, like what you see, what you don't see. Um, brilliant, brilliant. And um, between your two main characters here in Titan, you've got Alexia, um, played by Agat, as I mentioned earlier, who's a complete newcomer. This is her first feature film. Um, and then you've got Vincent Lindon, who is a French acting legend, who's got all this experience. Um, what made you want to go for such a contrast um, in actors for your main characters? And what do you think that brought to the film in the end? Well, there are many things. Obviously, I wanted a newcomer uh, on the part of Alexia because I wanted that energy that the, 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 the character, really, the, the part really required, that very like uh, forward energy that newcomers are, are you know, uh, mm -hmm. have. And, um, and also I needed someone who uh, had a very specific uh, physique, a very specific look that had to be androgynous. And for that reason, I casted both um, uh, men and women, young men and young women for the part, because yeah. I had a very specific thing in mind and that could, that could have come from anybody, but it was mm -hmm. a very, very specific thing. And um, when I found Agathe, because that she's the one whom I realized I really wanted to film the most, because Agathe has a very shape-shifting face, like she can really change according to where you put the camera or how you light her. Mm. So it's really, it's really like she can go from one person to the other, which is like for me extremely interesting. So that's that's one of the the, 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 the very important reasons why I I, I came on to, to 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 ask her to do the film in the mm -hmm. end after six months of casting. Yeah. And for Vincent, it's for a different thing. Vincent is for me one of um, of our actors that is actually for um, let's say a very very um, strong with emotions. He mm. is fearless as far as emotions are concerned. He. He gives himself 1,000% constantly. And because he's such a good actor and because he has such a long experience before, these emotions never, um, um, never come out unchanneled. They are always channeled, but at the same time, they are really all in because he's incredibly fearless. And because mm -hmm. his character is the bearer of emotions of the film, it was very important for me to have a, uh, an actor who can do that. And that's a very hard skill to have. So after that, I thought, yeah, having a newcomer and a legend, as you say, uh, together on set. Yeah, I thought... First, I thought that oh, that's going to be a good blend on, of energy. 
I think the energies are so different that it's going to complement themselves, which it did, by the way. But yeah. also, um, the, the, the thing is that my universe is quite specific, and none of them had um, ever done uh, one of my films, and the, none of them had ever been in my universe. And mm-hmm. for Vincent, somehow, on many levels, working with uh, effects and all that, it was a new thing for him. You know, yeah. it was quite new. So in the end, I never saw them on set as being the newcomer and the legend. I saw them as uh, Alexia and Vincent or Agathe yeah. and Vincent. But for me, they, 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 in this universe, they were actually quite equal, you know, which felt very good. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Julia, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for taking the time. Have a great rest of your day. Okay, so that was Julia Ducournau, and we will be talking about Titan in just a few minutes because now it is time for the reviews section. We're breaking for Christmas, but cinema isn't. (laughs) Movies are not breaking for Christmas. They are continuing apace, and there's an awful lot of stuff coming your way over the Christmas break, Boxing Day and beyond. Certain films are opening on New Year's Day in this country. We will be reviewing those in our next podcast, which is going to be out on January 7th. So it's the likes of Paul Thomas Anderson, the second best directing Paul Anderson. He's back with Licorice Pizza. Uh, and we also have uh, it's another one of those batch of Cumberbatches it's Benedict Cumberbatch he's back in the electrical life of Louis Wayne Helen you've seen both of those quick thumbs up thumbs down what are we saying you know if people are at a loss a loose end on January 1st should they go see one both um, either I think uh, Louis Wayne is is cute it's kind of the sort of you know comforting likeable biopic that your granny will love you know in a way it's a sort of a slightly obscure figure but one with with an interesting story and it is very charmingly played by Cumberbatch and, and Claire Foy is in there as well and people but with some unusual tweaks because of his illness and because of his art there's a little bit of almost animated sections it's it's very charming um Animation. not going to change Please the world explain. Uh, I, I I can add nothing to what we told you already. I'm afraid. Oh, so it's, um, it's people running very, it's people very running fast past the, the frame, holding holding okay. pictures. Yeah. Um, so, but but yeah, charming, uh, inessential, but but likable uh, in the extreme, and good you good sound like good you just performances. Me. Hey, I would never call you charming. Wait, no. Anyway, oh, um, I shouldn't be it. mean to you. You're sick. I feel bad. Anywho, uh, it's like kicking a puppy. Licorice Pizza is um, the new Paul Thomas Anderson, obviously. It is, once again, sort of in the valley, uh, a very nostalgic piece. It's sort of uh, his childhood and actually based on the life of a friend of his, uh, rather loosely, uh, or inspired by the life of a friend of his. Very, very charmingly led by Cooper Hoffman, son of the late, great Philip Seymour. A very, very good performance by Alana Heim. Uh, and her entire family with her. Generally speaking, it's him being cool and nostalgic and chilled and laid back, and and it's very very charming. So we're we're going to give the star ratings and proper reviews yes. in the next episode. But just in case you like I say you fancy seeing something on Jan first, and you've seen everything else we're going to be talking about, get yourself along to one or both of those. All right, let's dig into the films that are out right now or will be out in the next few days. And we're going to start. There's only one place to start. We've got to start here. We've got to go back into the Matrix. Yes. Helen, remove your headphones. I'm removing my headphones. <laughs> putting myself on mute. Helen has not seen... We can't, oh, we can't see anything now. We can. Helen, Absolutely you anything. smell of poo. Helen, Helen, you smell of poo. 
Hey, Helen, how's it going? Wow, it's so unnecessary. What? What? I mean, why do you think we're doing this remotely? So I can smell poo in peace. (laughs) (laughs) You come to Northern Ireland, the first thing you do is smear yourself in poo. (laughs) Ah, yes, the warm, comforting bath of shit. Oh, lovely. Anyway. Anyway. Helen has not seen The Matrix Resurrection, so she's going to take her headphones off because even though we're going to be spoiler free. And then you're not going to insult me this time. (laughs) No, 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 of course not. Of course not. I will say, before we say anything about this film, there is a part of me that almost thinks if people are going to watch this, they shouldn't listen to this review. Not that we're going to spoil it, but I feel a little bit like this is a film where if you know nothing about the synopsis of it on any level, that's probably the ideal state (laughs) I've seen it, Jimbo, and I know nothing about the synopsis. And honestly, by the time you come out, you'll probably be no wiser than you are now. But but I do think, like, as I had to read Alex's review uh, before we put it up, and I felt a bit sad that I'd read it. I'd love to have gone in not knowing how utterly batshit this film was going to be before I went in to see it because it is batshit on every single level all right so should we say to the, should we say to people at home that they should do the same as Helen, which is probably skip yeah, the next I ten think, minutes I or think, so of the podcast? I think skip skip the next bit. Can you put the, the like the timestamps in the description or something? I will, just I will try sure and you. put the timestamps in the description. Yep. I, I, I every now and again I remember to do that, then I forget. But I'll, I'll try <laughs> well, and do it for this one. Chris remembered. I, take a temporary yeah. blue pill, then take the yeah, red one exactly. later. And then take the red one later. But it's yeah. not a spoiler interview. It's not a spoiler interview. It's no, not a spoiler, not a spoiler review. review. Yeah. But what I will say is that I saw this movie about how long ago now, guys? Three, Three weeks, weeks ago? Three torturous Something yeah, like that. Crazy. And for reasons best known to themselves, the powers that be, they decided then to not show it to anyone else I know. Uh, in this country. And uh, both Ben and James, because, you know, of... of COVID and isolation and just generally living mile, fucking miles away from anywhere uh, <laughs> decided they couldn't make the screening that was on this week and so they they paid actual yeah. money I've just come back from it yeah I presume your own money you didn't just mug someone and then use that no, money to go no, to the cinema no I paid actual okay. money okay actual money to see the actual film and what did you actually think do you know what? I remember when I asked you, I said that you came out of the screen. And you, I said, what do you think? What do you think? You were like, I just don't know. <laughs> and I came out of this. I was like, I kind of see what he means. I'm not sure. And if you look at the reviews for this on Metacritic, it ranges from five stars to one star. And yeah. I totally understand why that is the case. Because this is, and having, bear in mind, this is the week after we've come out of Spider-Man No Way Home. This may be the most meta film I've ever seen in my life. Like to the point where it, it almost disappears so far up its own asshole that there is no asshole. Like it's just, it's completely the most nuts thing. So James, it's, it's down Keanu the rabbit Reeves. hole, not up the arsehole. <laughs> <laughs> up the arsehole, down the rabbit's arsehole. It's absolutely everywhere. But this does Keanu Reeves as Thomas Anderson, a video game designer famous for creating three very popular video games called The Matrix, The Matrix Reloaded, and The Matrix Revolutions. And that's what he does. And he fancies a girl in a coffee shop who looks an awful lot like Carrie Ann Moss, but her name is Tiffany. And I'd love to say that was as meta as it gets, except it isn't. He has a therapist played by Neil Patrick Harris who has a black cat called Deja Vu. Like, genuinely, like, you're you're watching this thinking, I don't know what is happening and I don't know if I'm happy that it's happening, even if it is happening, and somebody wake me up, please. It is a very, very strange thing, but... So within this world, he is a man who's had a nervous breakdown uh, and footage from The Matrix appears in this film as footage from his game that he has created. And I think to kind of talk about the plot any further than that would definitely enter into spoiler territory. But that's about, that's kind of the meta setup. And I don't think it ever gets any less meta. I think 
On the one hand, this film is absolutely bold and batshit and brilliant in that it does something so outrageously up its own ass that it's kind of genius. And then that's kind of the first half of the film. And the second half of the film is kind of the sort of action you would expect from a Matrix movie. And yet, weirdly, in this one, I thought felt not inept, but certainly generic. I think it didn't do anything new, and that's fine. Look, I get it. The Matrix films were groundbreaking in what they did for action. To expect this to do that might have been a little bit much. But I found the action actually very lacking at times and very uninspired. The choreography, the bullet time, the acrobatics, all of that. It was lacking a lot of those kind of Hong Kong-inspired wide shots, those really long shots, those beautifully framed ones you get in the Matrix, the early Matrix movies. Uh, and so I found myself actually ultimately getting quite bored when it was being a Matrix movie and weirdly perplexed but intrigued when it was being some kind of meta-narrative commentary on the Matrix films. Like, there's a brainstorm session where they're trying to discuss, because they're trying to do a Matrix 4, what should be a Matrix 4, what makes the Matrix films good, or games good in this case, and one of them's kind of reeling off what they are. Oh, it's a trans-narrative, you know, it's all about this. So it's very, very, very introspective. But I do kind of feel that Whereas Spider-Man does this brilliantly, and again, we're not going to have any spoilers for Spider-Man, but Spider-Man does the kind of metatextual thing extremely well, and it walks the line between, oh no, you fucked it, and oh, this is just enough to push the envelope very, very well. And I think this one doesn't do it with the same level of skill. And I think having come off that film, it really sort of hit home for me how much this one, I think, loses its way a little bit. So as for what I think of this, all I can say is if I were to rank the Matrix movies, I would probably rank this fourth. Oh, And that's how I feel. Okay, that's interesting. I applaud its moxie, but I think ultimately what it sets out to do, it doesn't really succeed in doing. Interesting. Okay, so we should point out that this is written and directed, co-written, and directed by Lana Wachowski. Because Lily did not wish to do it. Not with Lily, yes. Uh, So, and it's got a whole new... Ca- you know, whole new crew behind the camera, um, which Jessica I think Henwick in it is uh, one of the main major characters, and yes. she's excellent in it as well. Yaya Abdul Mateen yep. second is in it as well. Uh, so yeah, lots and lots of good people, and there's some returning people as well. But again, spoilers. But the the, the fact that there's a whole new crew behind the camera means that it looks and feels very different from the, it does. From the first very three different. matrices or matrices, matrices. Uh, if, <laughs> if that's the, the the collective noun for those. Uh, so. I'll talk about it in a, in, a, in a few seconds, but what I really want to know, because I haven't had a chance to speak to either of you guys, I want to know about Ben's reaction to this. Mm, because you the, were super excited. Ben's super, super in for this. He's a Matrix mega fan, despite the fact that he sold the sequels. Uh, he is still all <laughs> in, as indeed were we. The Matrix is uh, a, you know untouchable masterpiece. Ben, what did you think of this movie? Yeah, I was crazy, crazy hyped for this one. I was in the IMAX at 10 o'clock this morning, ready for the first screening in all of Nottingham. And <laughs> I have to say, I generally had a total blast with it. I, I think my feelings, Hugh, actually quite similarly to James's overall. The first hour or so, I, I feel like this is already a mini spoiler special. Like, Chris, we got a spoiler <laughs> warning the absolute hell out of this because I feel like even what James has said, as much as it is the setup for the film, I went in knowing nothing and, and the trailers show you nothing. So yeah. when the film started setting itself up, I mean, the very first scene and what that started doing and then where it started pivoting from there, I was... I could have screamed in my seat. I was like, this is this is just wild. This is so insane and I love it. And then, as James says, there is a point where it kind of, I guess, pivots from being a commentary on the first film to then being something that 
adds to or revolves around some of the mythology more based around the sequels, which I really like the sequels. I am a major sequels apologist for the Matrix movies. What? I did not know this about you. You didn't know I love the Matrix sequels. Is that is genuinely? No, I didn't know this about you. I didn't know anyone ben loved the Matrix sequels. wrong about sequel sci-fi sequel shocker no i am right once again as always as ever no i i think the sequels are great i I think they have a bit of a make a bit of a star wars prequelsy thing of telling a really good story in a not great way but the action is off the hook and what they're doing and the ideas they're playing in i think are brilliant this one i think the ideas are top notch the ideas are totally there and you feel that so much especially in the first hour the second hour also I had some issues with. I think you don't quite fully know the stakes really of what of the story of of what they're aiming for. There are some personal stakes, but the wider stakes I think are a little bit loose when it comes into focus kind of exactly who the villain is and what that villain is. I wasn't massively enamored with the performance or the writing for the villain. But when it all kicked into gear in the final half hour, I was I was so in again and seeing those old characters back and seeing them not just slip back into their old old roles I'm talking specifically Keanu and Carrie Ann seeing them slip back into those roles but also circle the edges of those roles and consider who they are now and who they were in those films and who they are as actors now and who they were as actors back then is just beautiful and joyous and it just is very much like latter-day Wachowski for me obviously Lily's not here but I think with The Matrix the first film is pure uncut cool everything about it is just the coolest thing you've ever seen maxed out on the cool scale and from there on in I feel like their filmography really starts to like soak in so much sincerity and i think the emotion in this there is such sincerity to it yes and sincerity Mm. it it can be uncool but i think there is something really fucking cool about how sincere they are and the fact that lana was is playing back in this universe with these characters and doing something really interesting and weird with it going ultra sincere with it at the same time because i I think that's something in the sequels they are very weirdly sincere like sort of love stories about them trying to break out of the system and saving humanity i just loved seeing all of that together and even the bits that didn't work for me i was so happy to take because it just felt so Wachowski to me and that's all I wanted from this there is an action sequence in the middle of this that I think is rubbish I think it's a rubbish action sequence I think some of the things happening in it were a bit cringy but I don't care because it feels of a piece with who Lana Wachowski is as a filmmaker now and, and the trajectory of the Wachowski's filmography so for me it's it's kind of old Wachowski's meets new Wachowski and that is a kind of wonderful thing. I'm so happy it exists. I can't wait to see it again. I I feel that Jimbo's been a bit harsh in this. I've had a, a couple of weeks now to have a, a real think about this movie because I I was absolutely in a vacuum with this. But this one, I was the only person from Empire to have seen it because I saw it ahead of the interview with Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss on last week's podcast. And if you listen to that interview, there's a lot of my questions. I kind of you know kind of hinted at what I was feeling about the movie or what, you know, or what I thought about the movie, which is interesting because it's a Matrix movie that goes out of its way for a long, long period to not feel like a Matrix movie. Mm. And I think that's going to wrong foot and even maybe rug pull a, a few people. And I've seen, as you know, as James said, some of the reviews um, are so far just venomous. Um, and some of them are great. Some of them, I saw someone say it's a five-star you know, masterpiece and you know, reinvents the wheel. 
what's interesting is that the, the first Matrix reinvented the wheel and reinvented what sci-fi was uh, and what you know what the big screen was capable of of doing when it came to portraying sci-fi. And the sequels tried their best to push that along a bit. And then I, I, I think they, the sequels are fascinating. I, I, we're going to do a spoiler special for this and I really want to dig into the sequels a, a little bit because I think the sequels have some really, really cool things about them. I also think they have some of the worst, some of the worst decisions in storytelling that you could possibly make <laughs> and some horrendous production design and just, just generally misconceived moments. And this is a film that, as we discussed, because it is a Matrix 4, it is, as I said last week in the interview, it is a movie that's in dialogue and conversation with its own past. And so what that means is that you have, you have, you're being constantly reminded, this is the fourth Matrix, you're being constantly reminded of that it's being built on the shoulders of what went before. You're being constantly reminded. And and and, 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 and in a way that, that gives a real emotional resonance and a real emotional complexity to a lot of things. I think the relationship, I love The Matrix, but I think one of the weird things about that movie that doesn't work entirely well as it should do is the relationship between Neo and Trinity, uh, which I don't think is given anywhere near the amount of time that you need for Trinity to say what she says to Neo at the end of that movie. This movie is much deeper. It is much richer. It is built on what came before. And there's something that was such... Uh, Any time that Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss had a scene together, I was in absolute raptures. It was it was glorious and it felt, it felt very, very emotional and very resonant, as I said earlier on. It's also a movie that's, because it's in conversation with itself, curiously avoids some of the missteps that dogged the sequels. Whilst leaning in and doubling down at certain things that I, you know, that were maybe contentious or 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 badly received about the sequel, so it's really really interesting. But what's what what is really interesting about it is that it doesn't try and reinvent the wheel. It's a movie that's very much I think at peace with its own legacy in terms of bullet time, and it's a bit like the Terminator franchise, right? So Jim James Cameron comes up with the T one thousand. It's an idea so good that no Terminator movie has been able to top it since. And the visual grammar and the visual style of The Matrix and Bullet Time and all that is so influential that I think with this movie, Lana Wachowski's gone, you know what, I can't even begin to top that. I can't even begin to push past it. We did what we did. We reinvented the wheel. Let's just take that and we'll play with it rather than trying to push it on and and uh, and make it and, and make something new. Um, so there's lots of really really interesting stuff to talk about. I can't wait for the spoiler special, uh, not least because you know there's stuff in this movie that perplexes me because I'm very very stupid. Let's not forget. And uh, I'm looking forward to being schooled. For I will be the one going to fool school whenever <laughs> Ben is telling me why I'm wrong about certain things, why I've misinterpreted certain things in the Matrix Resurrections. Uh, we gave it three stars. Three stars. Mm. I, I think I'm kind of in the. I think I, I think it's better than the two sequels. I re, I really do. Oh. And uh, so for me, I I'm three four. I'm in the in the cab. I I enjoyed an awful lot of, uh, about it. There's there's moments that just felt a little bit perplexing. But you know, but hey, we can get into it later on. I'm grudging three. 
I would give it three because it's by no means a two-star film. But because you get into this thing when you deal with franchises like this, where you start comparative reviewing, do you know what I mean? Where where you're punishing a film for not being what you think it should be because you've seen the other films, and I think that's where well, I this, am with this. This is but. exactly how I made the Attack of the Clones mistake. This is exactly, <laughs> yeah, exactly how I fell into that. Yeah. yeah. But by that, you're saying that a three-star movie is worse than the Matrix Revolutions. So therefore, you're saying the Matrix Revolutions. I do is think a it's a three-star movie. No, I think oh, I think okay. I think I think both the sequels are three-star films in their own way because they're not in in essence like terrible films in and of their own right. And if they weren't connected to the original Matrix, people would you know think of them a lot more highly this felt to me just like a ropey cover version of a matrix movie for all of its you know bold ideas and sort of big swings and it get, i mean it swings for the fences like i think almost nothing i've ever seen and it does deserve props for that i just think ultimately the ball ends up in the dirt i i think we'll, we'll bring we'll put helen's headphones back on in a second we'll stop talking about this movie because we've got a whole spoiler special to talk about i think <laughs> helen I has think read the, a whole book ident- in this time helen has been sitting there she reading has. the wheel of time for the fifth written time one, in fact <laughs> Uh, it's called it's called Helen versus Men prattling on about the Matrix Resurrections. Uh, it's out in all good bookstores next year. But I also think that there is you know, there are moments of just pure dazzling invention in this film. You know, we haven't even really talked about Yahya Abdul Mateen II and his take on Morpheus, and we won't. But what I will say is that it's pretty much like nothing you've ever seen. So it's it's. I guess that is reinventing the wheel. So there you go. Hey, well done, everybody. Uh, it's uh, yeah, it's got really, really fantastic passages, and then other passages where it just feels a little bit drib and drab and uninspired. But but hey ho, three stars, three stars for this ultra divisive movie. We've gone right down the middle <laughs> with the Matrix Resurrections. Helen, you've got your headphones back on. Hello. Did you hear any of that? No. Let's say no. Good. Good, good, good. Be interested to see what you think about the Matrix Resurrections, and I'm also interested to see what you think about the Kingsman. Mm. Although I know you're not a fan of the first two, so perhaps we should just move on very, very quickly. <laughs> I, I appreciate that they're swinging for the fences and trying something different with this one. So this is the Kingsman, two words, and it is a prequel. This is the story of how the organisation was founded in World War One, At least that's the way it was sold. The film kind of remembers to do that eventually, but it's not really that for a very, very, very substantial part of the running time. Instead, we're following uh, the Duke of Oxford, Orlando, played by um, uh, Ray Fiennes, who is a kind of diplomat, uh, peacenik, uh, do-gooder, uh, travelling the world, trying to put right what once went wrong, uh, like Scott Bakula. And trying to raise his son Conrad, played by Harris Dickinson, the same way. So he's a very kind of likable guy, I guess. But the problem is that World War One is looming on the horizon, despite Orlando's best efforts. Spoiler: dun, 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 dun. He's not going to be able to stop World War One breaking out. But he's generally trying to keep the carnage to a minimum, to bring the war to an end with the right side, as he sees it, winning, um, and to generally, you know, fight for the cause of justice and right and everything else. Um, Really, really good cast around him. Most of them underserved, I would say, by uh, what they have to do. So you have Gemma Arderton and Jaiman Hunsu as his sort of loyal and lethal retainers um, who are quite competent in a fight, but maybe don't get quite enough fighting to do. Um, What does it mean that a pacifist hires these people to do all this dirty work for him? Is that really compatible with the whole ethos? I'm not sure, but there we are. Uh, And there's some really, really good fun because he's up against uh, serious enemies, like, for example, Risa fans as Rasputin. Um, So there's a lot of fun ideas in this film. You have Tom Hollander playing three different roles. Fun 
inherently a good idea to have those cousins all played by the same man. That's that's a very funny joke to me. The problem, as I saw, was was pretty much everything else. Uh, I thought there was way too much plot in this. I thought it was about 40 minutes too long. I thought it was tonally bizarre. Um, the fact that it shifts from these really weird, over-the-top, you know, very Kingsman-y kind of action scenes, um, quite comic tone at times, and then goes into the trenches of World War One, and even this film takes that seriously, at least. Uh, it's a very, very strange tone that kind of keeps shifting around. But yeah, it, I just I was I was annoyed at it and frustrated by it, and and I felt like the the good bits made me more frustrated at the bits that frustrated me, if you know what I mean. Because because there were there were times where I was really having fun, and then the movie kept taking me out of those times, and uh, that annoyed me. So yeah, uh, for for me, it's a two star movie, but I think I'm I'm lower than the offer's average, and I think most people would give this three. All right, okay. So I was on set this movie a long time ago, a long time ago. Here's how long ago I was on set of this movie. Uh, I was on set of this movie the night Liverpool beat Barcelona 4-0 in the Champions League semi-final second leg to reach the Champions League final. That was in May 2019. That is how long it has taken this movie to come out uh, because of the pandemic. It because was pretty pandemic, much set, yeah. set to go. But uh, yeah, it's it's been a long, long time. Uh, and listen, I unlike Helen, you know, We've had Barneys about the, the Kingsman movies and about the tonal shifts, which I think are totally fine uh, and totally in keeping. I think they're very, very fun movies, very, very knowing winks uh, that maybe overstepped the line a couple of times, especially in this in the second one. But this one isn't that. This one, I think, is, is a bit more on solid ground. And uh, uh, I think the performances, as you say, this is Ray Fiennes, who have for too long... You know, he's one of our best actors, obviously, but yeah. he has for too long telling been telling Bond what to do or trying to throw a wand at Harry Potter. And uh, he has only really properly made one movie like this in the past, and that was The Avengers. Not that one, but the really, really, really <laughs> shit one from 1998, I want to say. And this is much better. This is Ray Fiennes as middle-aged action hero, not quite cherry action, but close enough and uh, having an absolute blast doing so there's some really really nice action sequences and it's got a slight sense of humor all the way through and the world war one scenes i thought were surprising and surprising mm. in, in how effectively somber and even moving they were and uh, so i think if you did not like kingsman the golden circle and i know that a lot of people didn't and the, uh, this is a shift in another direction, I think, um, for this franchise. So The King's Man is out in cinemas on Boxing Day, if you fancy going along to see that. And we gave it three stars. Three stars for The King's Man. All right, let's stop Titan around and talk about Titan. Yes, this is the new film by Julia de Cornell, the incredible French filmmaker who made Raw a few years ago. I don't know if you've seen Raw, but that film is astonishing. It's incredible. It made me feel quite sick uh, while also blowing my mind. Uh, this is, I guess, similarly horror-ish, but like with Raw, it is a horror film with a lot of non-traditional horror stuff in it's very much in that new french extreme sort of movement uh i'm, I'm gonna dance around plot stuff here because i think well for one mm. thing this film is <laughs> fucking wild it's absolutely nuts and to try and explain the plot doesn't really tell you much about the film uh, and also it's just full of stuff that you should maybe discover for yourself but it principally follows uh, Alexia, who as a kid is in a car crash. She has to have a metal plate put in her head. And in her sort of adult years or young adult years, 
she is a dancer working at car shows, dancing with cars in a kind of fast and furious sort of way. <laughs> and then things happen in cars and on cars and with cars. And uh, we learn that maybe she has some secrets that she's hiding in terms of potentially murdering a lot of people. And she goes <laughs> on a, a journey of the body and the mind. And <laughs> okay, so this is this is truly, truly wild. And I don't want to ruin the surprises. I do think a lot of the sensationalist reviews kind of actually spoil the stuff that you should wait and just see in the moment. But the thing I found most surprising about this, right, it is a film that truly, from minute to minute, you don't know where it's going next. And I say that because in the opening half hour, so many things happen that you just can't describe or explain. It has a very dreamlike quality in the way that the, the plot ebbs and flows, in the way that Alexia's journey continues and she moves from scenario to scenario, from kind of slightly banal things to then extreme violence and then to extreme tenderness. And then when you think you have the measure of this wild film that's going to do a crazy thing every couple of minutes, it really shifts gears for much of the runtime as Alexia kind of falls in with this guy, uh, Vin Vincent, Vincent uh, played by Vincent Lindon, and the way that their relationship develops and the way that they play off each other, their expectations of each other, the way they present themselves to each other, the undoing of that... This film is crazy, right? Because it is so brutal in so many ways, gleefully, darkly, comically brutal in the way that Raw was. But like Raw, it is incredibly tender. The emotion in it is very tender. The ideas it's playing with are very fluid and interesting and don't typically fit that horror mould or that horror narrative. Um, I don't really know what else to say without spoiling it, except that it's incredibly cinematic, it's beautifully shot, it's incredibly well performed. Agathe Roussel, who plays Alexia, she is a newcomer, she is incredible in this. The stuff that she has to do, the places she has to go, mm -hmm. she sells it so much. And it's just, I, I don't think, I didn't love it in the same way that I did Raw. I'm intrigued to watch it again because it wrong-footed me so much with the direction it eventually takes. But it is another absolutely fascinating work from Julia de Cornell. She is an incredible talent. I cannot wait to see whatever she does next. Yeah, it's it's stunning looking. And you're right, that first half hour, you have literally no idea what's happening from one minute to the next. You, you cannot at any point predict where this film is going. Um, and, and it sort of does get back to that sense as well. So... Uh, yeah, I'm glad I saw it. I, I don't know what to feel about it entirely, but I'm really glad I saw it. Fascinating. <laughs> and Vincent Landon is amazing. Amazing in this. Just the the, the tenderness and the, 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 the strength and the pain. And he's just amazing. He's, he's absolutely the heart and soul of the film. How would you compare it to other car movies like The Love Bug? I, I would not. I'd say there's a bit of Christine in there. <laughs> there is. There's a bit of Christine. There, there is are cars a, you know, that are bad I mean, to the bone, is what I will say. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Very interesting. Uh, we gave this one four stars. Four stars then for Titan, which is also out in cinemas from December 26th, folks. And we're going to round off this year's reviews with Don't Look Up, which is going to be on Netflix 
in two days' time, which is the 24th. It's on the 24th of December, so it's probably out by the time you're listening to this. And it is, of course, the latest film from Adam McKay and uh, Helen. Yeah. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine, but do you? I, I do not. This is this is a super, super dark comedy, um, which is basically a howl of despair against modern civilization, I feel like, and or at least modern society. It is, as you say, Adam McKay. He has his, as his stars two astronomers, played by Jennifer Lawrence and Leonardo DiCaprio, as Kate DiBiaschi and Dr. Mindy, uh, respectively. And they uh, discover a comet. Well, she, she initially discovers it, he then confirms her findings, and they realise that this comet is not just a, a spectacular new discovery, it's also going to hit planet Earth in a planet-killing event. We all know this stuff. We've all seen Deep Impact. We know it's an extinction level event. The problem is trying to get anyone to take it seriously. Um, you have President Orlean, played by Meryl Streep, who just cares about the midterms, and her absolutely obnoxious chief of staff, played by Jonah Hill. Uh, you have the, uh, the the news anchors who they you know go to to try and get the story out there, to try and get people seriously, played by Kate Blanchett and Tyler Perry. And they just want to put the nicest possible spin on it so everyone will cheer up over their morning coffee. You have eccentric tech billionaire Peter Isherwell, played by Mark Rylance, who has his own ideas of what should happen with the comet. It's mm. it's genuinely, I think it's the, it's one of the bleakest films I've ever seen. I mean, it's not quite threads, but just in terms of uh, its attitude to where we are now and the fact that it's, you know mostly fairly fair in portraying where we are now, uh, it's it's really quite a gut punch. Um, it's not a brilliant film. It's very on the nose. It is not subtle about anything that it does. But um, I think in its lack of subtlety, it may be quite effective. Yeah, perhaps it doesn't need to be subtle because yeah, not, I guess yeah. he's trying to get a, a, a message across to a, a, a big old wide audience at, at, the, uh, at the same time. Uh, obviously inspired by climate change, started mm-hmm. filming it in the pandemic, and it's very much about the pandemic as well, just kind of accidentally. Like a lot of the things that happened in this movie are, are things that have happened yeah. in the pandemic, where people are denying that COVID exists, that sort of thing. Uh, similarly, you have in this movie people denying that the asteroid exists. It made me laugh a lot mm. in terms of the you know, the, the wilder, crazier side of Adam McKay's filmography. It, it weirdly sits in between... Tonally, the likes of Frank Amman and Step Brothers and Talladega Nights, and then the more serious, the comedic stuff that he's done recently, the likes of The Big Short and Feist, which you keep reading is not a comedy, but absolutely is as oh, far as totally I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of in the middle. It's like the Fenn diagram. So you have those, those on one side and then Anchorman and whatnot on the other side. But it is fun to watch A-listers cutting loose and mm. stuff like this. It's very, very sharp and smart material, I would say, as well. Uh, and I'd be fascinated to see how this one goes down. There's, uh, there's, uh, It's a bit on the nose at times, yes, but then so is an asteroid hitting the planet. That's true. Yeah, so is climate change, ultimately. So is climate change. So is climate change. Yes. Oh, my God. Climate change. That's a lot of fun, isn't it? Oh, good grief. Oh, Lord. Existential crisis in five, four, three, two, one. We gave this one four stars. Four stars then for Don't Look Up. We're not quite finished yet because I have an interview with the film's writer, director, Adam McKay. Always a pleasure talking to Adam on the Empire podcast. We get into his method. We get into how he approaches writing about the end of the world and making it palatable, uh, his approach to humour and all sorts of stuff. Didn't want to talk about climate change with him because, quite frankly, I didn't want to be bummed out by the inevitable demise of the human race. Here we go. Here's Adam McKay. Do please enjoy. 
We are delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by the writer and director of Don't Look Up, Mr. Adam McKay. How the devil are you, sir? Mr. Hewitt, I am good. How are you, sir? Not too bad, not too bad. I just got my booster. I, I'm I'm now triple jabbed against COVID, so I'm feeling like I could walk on air. Oh, my God. Congratulations. I uh, I just read yesterday, now they're saying there may be a fourth shot. So you're not quite as high class as you thought you were, my friend. <laughs> This is always the way for it. This is always my way. Oh my god! Yeah, I'll, fourth shot, fifth shot, sixth shot. I'll take it. I will. I will take All it. All the cool people, Chris, are getting the fourth shot. So Damn it! I don't, I don't know. But you know what? Good for you. Good for you for the third shot. <laughs> I've done all right, haven't I? I've done okay. <laughs> By the way, let me be clear: they, they haven't started doing a fourth shot yet. I'm 100 percent kidding. I don't want to give out dangerous uh, medical advice. Okay. <laughs> This is true. This is very, very true. But uh, but yes, I was uh, as I was getting my shot, I was thinking because I've just seen "Don't Look Up" and I was going. It would be so nice if there were a shot against, well, a a comet, b global warming, and c kind of widespread ignorance. So that would be lovely if you could get just one <laughs> catch-all vaccine. That that'd be lovely. Uh, I know. I, I guess it was supposed to be terms and conditions, but uh, that hasn't worked. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wouldn't that be nice? It would be very nice indeed. Very nice indeed. But uh, I, I noticed something today. I was uh, reading a news story here. I don't know whether you're aware of this, but apparently as we speak, an asteroid is hurtling just past Earth, uh, some 4.6 million miles from Earth. <laughs> a space rock, which is bigger than the Eiffel Tower. It is a 4660 Nereus asteroid. It is passing by us today. And uh, I noticed that in the headline about this about this asteroid, I, I, I was tickled by this. And then I saw your film and was tickled even more. Because the headline is, Asteroid bigger than Eiffel Tower and worth £3.5 billion to, no. skim, <laughs> to skim Earth's orbit. And Come on. It's like this is how this is how we now rank asteroids and how much they're worth. There's an asteroid rich list, which is which is blowing my mind. <laughs> I give up. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I wrote this script before COVID, so it's yeah. already been the strangest experience I've ever had. I mean, it was this ridiculous, preposterous comedy. I decided I wanted to go back and mm. have some fun and, and laugh a little bit, even though I'm. You know, obviously it was inspired by the climate crisis. I still thought a good old fashioned absurd comedy could be a lot of good old fashioned absurd broad comedy could be a lot of fun. And then, yeah, I just sit back and watch the entire movie happen in real time. So uh, so, of course, there's an asteroid where they're putting the value of it in the headline because we are (laughs) mankind is deranged right now, including me including me. <laughs> Are you thinking to yourself, oh, I could, I could get in on a little bit of that asteroid action. That could be, <laughs> that would be all right. You got to pay the bills. You got to pay the bills. <laughs> I, might, I might send a drone up to do some low-key mining to see what, see what comes up. But... But it's, it's true. It feels like you are, because I know that you wrote this, as you say, before the pandemic um, kicked in, but it feels like, a, and it was made during the pandemic. And I wonder how much the general tone of the pandemic and, and and what was happening with you know shall we say if we're being generous um less than sterling leadership on both sides of the atlantic <laughs> i would say uh, and was that directly feeding into the movie because it's certainly 
some, or, 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 were, or was everything basically locked in before you before you started uh, filming? No, I, I I actually took some things out of the movie because they happened exactly in reality. There was a little beat in the movie where the comet spending bill, uh, President Orlean, played by Meryl Streep, mm. has to include a tax cut for the one percent in the comet spending bill to get it through our our Congress. And sure enough, right on TV, the Trump comes out with his people. It's a COVID spending bill with a tax cut for the one percent. So that stuff kept happening. Um, we had a bunch of press conference scenes we actually shot. And then I just decided they were so much like uh, the former president with Dr. Fauci and felt so much like press conferences from a lot of world leaders uh, during COVID that I was just like, you can't you can't do it. And then there were other elements of the movie that weren't crazy enough. Um, we had the comet denial in the script originally. Uh-huh. Uh, it was definitely a part of the script. But uh, after seeing I mean, when people started calling uh, COVID, uh, uh, a left-wing hoax, I uh, just was, it, it's, that's it. I mean, comedy, even broad comedy, because people always say satire is broken. Yeah. Forget it. Even broad, even broad comedy is broken at this point. <laughs> it's wild. It feels like it'd be an outstripped at every turn. Yeah, like it, it'd be like making Ace Ventura pet detective. And while you're making it, there's a bunch of articles about a private investigator helping these pets. And there was a tragic accident where he was swallowed by, a, was it a rhino that cropped him out in that movie? Yep. Like, it's just the most preposterous things we imagine with this script absolutely came true. Um, but still, we, we felt like, you know what? Uh, after having been through the five years of, of pummeling that we've all been through uh, by reality, um, there could be something nice about seeing it from a little bit of a different angle and laughing like uh, could be a really, really nice thing for for people. So that was sort of the inspiration for uh, for plowing ahead with it was mm. maybe some some nice absurdist gallows humor could be good right about now. I'm fascinated by by tone, and you, you know, you have, you know, especially with the Big Short and with Feist, you have walked a, a tonal tightrope with those movies. But with this one, I think especially so. And there's a there's a key line which is maybe the destruction of the planet shouldn't be fun. Maybe it should be terrifying. <laughs> and, <laughs> and what I thought was really interesting is that you kind of do both. You have your you have your cake and you eat it with Don't Look Up. But I'm I'm just fascinated. You know, you are you are a, a comedic filmmaker by by definition by trade. You sit down. You want to make a comedy, but the anger must keep rising up. So how did you? balance that how did you match match those two tones i i mean it was a lot of editing a lot of great actors finding the kind of perfect middle ground between the absurd and grounded enough um and there's no question there's a lot of feelings in this movie there's definitely anger there's frustration mm-hmm. uh there's you know bemusement there's actual sadness there's like a strange amount of love and appreciation too that that, that got it in the movie um and then you know hopefully over top of it all a, a, a good you know 500 steps back from what's going on hard hearty laugh so it, it uh yeah, we tried to replicate the feeling in the movie of what it's like to be alive now, what this feels like. 
And and hopefully, because audiences don't tend to have a lot of common ground nowadays, we're so split up and so tribalized that, that you know, comedy is in a very strange place right now. And I just really hoped and prayed that one thing we can all agree on is it is full on orange circus peanut bonkers to be alive <laughs> right now. What's your take on that? What, 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 has, what has happened in the last few years? Because it's been harder and harder and harder for, for comedy to punch through on the big screen. And obviously this is a Netflix movie, so you don't necessarily have to worry about that. But, you know, I, I, I can't really remember the last time, maybe something like a like girl's, girl's Trip or something like that. I think that's the last one. I was having that very discussion with a friend of mine. When's the last comedy to break through? And you can even go further than features. You can even go to like TV shows and stand-ups. It's like Fleabag, like John Mulaney. Like mm-hmm. it, it's not a lot. Um, you know, I, I I think we're just in a time of seismic uh, tectonic change. I, I think the world is changing rapidly and in ways that we're not really fully tracking. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely myself included. And and I think for comedy to, to work on the kind of scale you're talking about, that feeling we all had, like I remember going to see Wedding Crashers with my wife at the Arclight. The place was packed and just big belly laughs, like just fun, a big group of people enjoying that. And and I, I just don't know if we have that common ground right now because stuff's flying apart so fast and changing. And I think the economic stress of, you know, people in debt, not being pay, paid fair wages. Um, yeah, it, it's a tricky, tricky time uh, to find a common ground laugh. And I, I, I think the best laughs for me as someone who loves to laugh are those laughs where you're with a big crowd of people and you're get like you're getting the most specific laugh you can get while being in a large crowd of people like that those are like the sweetest best laughs where it's not a hacky laugh it's not a laugh of like we're laughing to be polite it's really funny and it's getting everyone in a group and yeah you just don't see a lot of those these days mm. so specifically what would you be thinking about I mean, I'll just one of the great laughs I've ever had in my life was, you know, in airplane when I was in what fifth grade, mm-hmm. the joke of the headlines spinning about how the plane's going to crash. People in plane doomed to die. Another newspaper headline, you know, pilot attempting to land plane. Third headline, boy trapped in refrigerator eats his own foot. <laughs> and it was like National Enquirer type headline. And I just remember being in a crowd of three, four hundred people, and like the specificity of that laugh was so fantastic um, and, and rocked me so hard. Um, that, there's many other examples like that, but that that's kind of one I always think. Of. I remember that. I remember seeing wedding crashes with my wife, and mm-hmm. it's just like you know, real casual, just rolled in, and just you know, some great hard laughs. Mm-hmm. Um, there are lots and lots of them. I remember seeing, oh, oh, the greatest one ever is Borat. I saw the first cut of Borat, and it was much longer than what it ended up being. It was an hour 50, and I was in a theater of, you know, it was like 80 friends of Sasha's, 
And the theater was like almost like shaking. People were laughing <laughs> so hard. Have you ever had the experience? I imagine you imagine you have, but where you uh, see a really funny film in a fairly packed theater and you're the only person laughing. <laughs> I've had that with Josie and the Pussycats and Hot Rod. There was, those are two that come to mind. I had it with In the Company of Men, Neil the Beautifully. I thought. I saw it on the campus, the Yale campus, not because I went to Yale, but because my dad lived near New Haven. Yeah. So my dad has a great laugh and we went to see it and the theater was packed and it's a dark, I mean, in the company of men is a dark, dark comedy, but we were laughing because it's like riffing on male, you know, misogynism and misogyny. And we were laughing the whole time and the lights came up and every person in the theater walked past us and shot daggers through us. <laughs> I've had that. Yeah. Makes, it just makes you double down. It makes you want to laugh more. It's true. It's like, it's fuck true. you. I'm, I find this film funny. Yes, yes. <laughs> I'm not the problem here. You're the problem here. Uh, but... Uh, but before I, I, I want to dig a little bit more into the the writing process behind it. Don't look up uh, as well. But um, you mentioned you mentioned an airplane. Uh, reminded me there's a, there's a shot. There's a brief shot in the trailer for Winning Time, which is the obviously for for the listeners at home, which is a new series that Adam has produced. Um, and there's a what seems like an absolutely spot on recreation of a shot from Airplane. That is correct. Yeah, we recreated the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar airplane scene. <laughs> and my, really, my brilliant director of photography, Todd Van Hazel, duplicated the look. Uh, my editor cut it. Hank Corwin cut it exactly as it was cut. And we had Zucker, Zucker, and Abrams on set. And, and uh, the, this is not really a spoiler alert, uh -huh. but in, in the pilot, when you see it, uh, there's a cutaway to the actual Zucker Zucker and Abrams, who I, I just fan gushed over for hours. I'm sure they got sick of me talking to them about how much the movie Airplane changed my life. And uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, there's actually a little cutaway of them in there. But yep, yep, that's in the film. That's amazing. Or, yeah, I'm sorry, in the show. In, in the, the show. In, the, in the show. In the show, absolutely. But you know, the, the, the lines are blurring constantly between film and show. It's, it's totally fine. It's totally fine. Uh, and we shot, we shot the winning time, the story of the 80s Lakers on film. We shot at 35 and basically just shot it like a movie, the same as Succession. So you're right. I uh, almost can't separate them. That is wild because I had literally, weirdly enough, rewatched Airplane the night before and... You know, it's embedded in my mind anyway, but I was just, then I saw the trailer and was like, oh my God, that is absolutely spot on. It's, it's uncanny. Um, oh, that's crazy. I mean, it's just the hit rate of that thing is, is, is incredible. But, uh, but, but that's, let's talk about, about your hit rate and how you sit down to write Don't Look Up because you, you are a voracious reader and you devour research. So when do you know the time has come to, put the, you know, the finger to the keyboard for the first time and, and start tapping this thing out? And how, how prepared are you? How planned are you in terms of what's going to happen and who the characters are? It's, it's about three or four stages. There's the initial idea, just the one, two or three line idea. And, you know, I, I, have a, I write down a bunch of different ideas and you can always tell it's the one when it just keeps bugging 
you again, you keep thinking about it and you start picturing scenes. Uh, so then the next step is kind of the, I, I call it the like story outline. And that can be six, seven pages where you, you write it like a short story. Uh, and then the most difficult part is the outline. Uh, because that's that heavy lifting where you put the structure together. And then the actual writing of it is a pleasure. I, I have a great time writing because you've already done the outline. It's the fun part of it. In this case, I shot that uh, Lakers show pilots with the outline for Don't Look Up already written. And I just had this itchy feeling the whole time, which I've never had before, where like, I got to write that right now. And we, we, we bought a, a, a lake house, little lake house over in Ireland uh, a few years back that one of the reasons I got it was to go and write there. And I, the second the pilot was over, I got on a plane and went over there just by myself for uh, like three weeks. And the script just poured out. It was really strange um, having this weird sense of urgency because it was a spec script. There was no one waiting on it. Uh, and so, yeah, the first draft, it might have been the fastest first draft I've ever written. Uh, it was about three weeks in Ireland. Wow. Wow. Three weeks. That's, <laughs> that's, that's it was wild. Crazy. It was crazy. <laughs> so what, yeah, what, I was writing like... 15, you know, 12, 15 pages a day, cleaning it up a little bit, another 12 pages a day. It was uh, the fastest process. And, and by the way, I then rewrite it five, six, seven, mm. eight times after that. And, you know, obviously with the pandemic, I had plenty of time to do that. But uh, but yeah, the first draft, that's, that's one of the more fever dream experiences I've ever had. So who's your comedy sound bell at that point, Adam? And because if you're writing this thing and you're in, you're in a fever dream, are you making yourself laugh? Are you are you reading out bits to people as they pass by? Local fishermen? What, what's, what's happening? <laughs> it's always uh, you're trying to make yourself laugh. Uh, you're trying to find the tone. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I have a group of four or five people that I will go to with that first draft. My wife is the best. She has an amazing laugh. Um, <laughs> and so she will be one of the first reads. She also is incapable of BSing me on it. She'll tell me exactly what's wrong. My producer, Kevin Messick, uh, our co-producer, Stacey Robert Steele, mm -hmm. uh, a couple friends of mine, my friend Rob Beagler, who contributed a bunch of great lines and jokes to the script. So yeah, there's a little group of people. And then I like to do read-throughs. I like to read it out loud to kind of beat it up. But I always knew this one was going to be strange. It was going to be hybrid, like a hybrid, like it's a mad, mad, mad world with a Lars von Trier movie. Like I always knew, <laughs> I always knew tone. I mean, that's what I like messing around with now is what tones can you blend? So, so I always knew this was going to be half Talladega Nights, half, you know, melancholia. <laughs> I mean, there's your poster quote. There's your poster quote right there. See the people line up around the block for that. Do you want to go see Don't Look Up? What's what's it like? Well, it's it's called. It's been it's been compared to Talladega Nights meets Melancholia. Yes, I am sold. Thank you very much indeed. Let's go get dinner and let's go see that. <laughs> and uh, and you're already hard at work on the next one, aren't you? With uh, with Miss Lawrence. 
Yeah, working on Bad Blood, going to do another rewrite on that. And I have another movie idea that's one of those ones that keeps kind of bugging me. So it'll either be Bad Blood or this other idea I'm kind of kicking around. And then uh, we have a lot of exciting projects coming out. This Lakers show turned out really cool. And it's I've heard the thing you want to hear, which is from people like I don't even like basketball and I love it. So um, <laughs> uh, so hopefully that's going to that's going to be really cool. And then we just had a movie directed by this really talented director, Mimi Cave, called Fresh, this uh, horror movie, uh, except that it's Sundance. And then we have uh, uh, Painting with John season two uh, for HBO is coming out. Uh-huh. And uh, a few other things in the hopper as well. We just finished shooting a movie called The Menu with Ray Fiennes yes. and Anya Taylor-Joy and uh, lots of fun stuff at Hyper Object. A bunch of good producers there. It's, it's really enjoyable. Absolutely. Amazing stuff. Um, well, Adam, I've got to let you go. Um, always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Chris, always love to talk to you. Be well. Likewise. Likewise. Take care, sir. Okay, so that was Adam McKay, and Don't Look Up is out now on Netflix. Go and check it out. And on that note, folks, that is it for this week's Empire Podcast, which isn't actually a regular episode of the Empire Podcast, but that is it for this year's Empire Podcast. Uh, unless, of course, you count the Review of the Year podcast, which will be up next week. <laughs> We're so consistent. <laughs> and are we doing a Boba Fett supporter special? Um, uh, we still haven't decided yet, have we? We're done. I mean, I guess I'm going to be knocking around the house. What the fuck else have I got to do now, right? Anyway. So <laughs> it's been it's been a year of ups and downs uh, right now, more downs than ups, but, uh, but we'll get through. We will get through. Do consider buying tickets to see us live on February 5th at kingsplace.co.uk. Makes a lovely Christmas present for your friends and your enemies. But we will be back Jan 7th, where we'll be joined by... Lupita Nyong'o, star of the action thriller The 355, and will also be joined by either Peter Dinklage, star of Cyrano, or Joe Wright, that film's director. Haven't quite figured out which one I'm going to go with yet, but uh, that'll be out on Jan 7th. And obviously keep peel for spoiler specials and more specials and stuff coming your way over the Christmas period. Frankly, I got COVID. I got nothing better to do. But until we, until we meet again, until then, until that auspicious occasion, it's goodbye from my three Christmassy colleagues of such lethal Christmas cunning. Riverside names, because we're now in Riverside, just to keep me guessing. Christmas splaining, it's Mr. James Dyer. Ho, 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 James. Goodbye. Now I have a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. Happy Christmas. Yes, I don't <laughs> think I would ever give you a machine gun or indeed any deadly weapon for Christmas or indeed Fair any enough. other time. But also happy birthday for earlier in the week, Jimbo. <laughs> Thank you. I'm sure it was a really, really wonderful occasion. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is goodbye from Merry Matrixmas, Ben Travis. The Matrix! Yeah. Goodbye. Sam Raimi! Now, Helen, you go. Sam Raimi? There we go. Okay. <laughs> it's goodbye from Helen, who did not get the memo about Christmassy names, and is I simply known yesterday. as yesterday. I did yesterday. I just can't remember what it was today. So, sorry. Toodaloo. Happy Christmas. Bye. And it's goodbye from me. Ho, ho, COVID-19. I'm off to cough in Santa Claus's stupid fucking face. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. Oh, no. Christmas spirit. See you next year. Bye. Bye.